Good morning. Oh, Lord have mercy. It's been a very long time <laughs> since I have uh, preached. I was talking to Pastor David this morning and realized that he was not on staff the last time I preached. Um, I've now had a baby who was four months old. <laughs> yeah. But so like nine months of pregnancy, she's four months old. It's been a long time since I preached. Um, but I'm excited to be here. When Pastor Peter asked me to preach, the first thing I thought, and this is kind of sort of pathetic, but you know, whatever, it's me. The first thing I thought was, oh, cool, I finally get to use like one of those parenting metaphors in the sermon because like, you know, like I've been a mother. And then, you know, he texts me the, the passage, the scripture text. And it's, you know, about two people being smited. Um, so, you know, as much as I tried to get a parenting metaphor into the sermon, my baby is four months old and she's so precious. So she hadn't quite taken me there to where I can figure out how that relates to smiting. You know, I'm sure by the time she gets to be about two, <laughs> I could re-preach this sermon and I might have something else to say, but no. Um, yeah, so I was very excited. Okay, so what are we talking about today? We are going to be in the book of Acts. I know some of you guys are thinking, what the heck are you talking about? People getting smited. Um, if you've looked at your bulletin, you know we're in Acts chapter 5, and that's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so, and like I said, these are two people who get smited. So we're going to go ahead and get right into this passage so that we can sort of figure out what's going on here. So Acts chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and turn to that. And starting with the first verse, it reads, Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest to put at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out to bury him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. All right, so we've been journeying through the book of Acts and studying this first Christian community as a way of better, better understanding, you know, what God has to say about our community and the church today. And up until this point, things have been going fairly smoothly, right? You know, Pentecost has happened. Um, the Holy Spirit has come. Jesus Christ has ascended, not in that order. Um, Thousands of people have become believers. This this little fledgling community is blossoming and bursting at the seams. And then now we find ourselves in Acts chapter 5, and contrary to popular belief, we find that smiting was not just reserved for the Old Testament. So one thing I've come to appreciate um, about preparing for a sermon, and 
if I'm honest with you. There aren't a lot of things that I appreciate about preparing for a sermon. But one of the things that I do is the way that God will, you know, in the weeks leading up to me preaching, sort of allow me to have certain experiences that really speak to the topic. And I never see it until I sit down to write. So this, was, this time was not uh, unusual. I was talking to my sister last week, and uh, she was getting my nephews ready for school. And uh, so she's talking to them, and all of a sudden, my older nephew kind of interrupts her talking to his brother. And he tells her some bit of information, something that apparently had just happened, that my sister saw and he wasn't aware of. So all of a sudden, my sister goes, boy, now you're just telling unnecessary lies. So I crack up because I'm trying to figure out what a necessary lie might be, right? I mean, like, what is that? I don't know what that means. You have to understand my sister to, to fully appreciate that statement. But certainly my sister didn't think that, you know, my little nephew could tell an appropriate lie. But she was frustrated because, I mean, this was an unsolicited, bold-faced lie. My nephew had actually interrupted a conversation she was having with her younger brother to tell this lie. There was no reason for it, Right? So when I sat down and started studying this passage, that's the first thing that came to my mind. Because in essence, that's what Peter says to Ananias in verse 4, right? He says, look, didn't the land belong to you before you sold it? And after it was sold, wasn't the money yours to do with as you please? What made you think of such a thing? Translation, Ananias, now you're just telling unnecessary lies, right? (laughs) Like, it's just, just not necessary. Okay. So to understand what's going on in this passage, we have to answer two questions. First, what was Ananias and Sapphira's sin? And then two, what was so bad about that sin that it caused them to incur such a harsh penalty? Okay, so let's start with the first question. What exactly was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? So at a first reading, you might think that the sin was greed um, or stinginess. And it it would make sense to think that. I mean, if you think about last week, we we learned that this was a very radically generous community, right? Acts chapter 4, 32 through 35 tells us that all the believers were in one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses would sell them, bring the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. And then in verse 36 and 37, we learn about Barnabas, right? It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So when you look at today's text... It seems like this story of Barnabas is sort of juxtaposed against the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So it's a logical assumption to think that, well, okay, so whereas Barnabas was radically generous, Ananias and Sapphira were radically stingy, and so that was a sin. I have to say, if that's what this passage was about, this would be an awesome text to preach. Like if you needed to raise a big offering or something, you could be like, you know, give or be smited, you know? (laughs) And we laugh. But I promise you that somewhere in this country, (laughs) someone has preached, about to preach, just finished preaching something very similar to this. Um, Okay, so as logical as it might be to presume that the sin was stinginess and greed, 
Um, that is not if what, you know, what caused, you know, God to put the smite down. I'm going to stop. No more smite jokes. I just, I like that word. <laughs> I like. Um, all right. So then many of you are probably thinking, because of my, you know, my uh, sermon title and because of the story I, I shared about my nephew, that the sin was lying. Um, and certainly lying was a part of what was going on here. But I want to submit to you today that it wasn't the lie they told. It wasn't because they told the lie that they ended up having to be put to death. So to understand this passage, we have to put it in context. So one important thing to keep in mind um, is what Acts is about. If you remember, this is basically a story about the, the formation of this early church, the formation and the growth of the first church. And so Christ has been resurrected at the start of Acts. He ascends and the Holy Spirit is sent. And if you remember, Jesus tells these people that, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to have power to be my witnesses in Judea and in Samaria and then to, to the ends of the earth. So you've got this whole thing happening where the church is exploding. People are doing miracles. Folk are coming to believe. In short, the Christian community is beginning to walk into Christ's promise. They are beginning to be witnesses. So why is this important? Well, Jesus told them they would be witness. What's a witness? In this context, to be a witness is basically to be a billboard pointing everybody in the direction of Christ. So basically what he's saying to them is people are going to be looking at you. People are going to see you. And because of the things that the Holy Spirit is doing in your lives in this community, folk are going to be drawn to the gospel. Folk are going to see me. All right. So now let's think about Ananias and Sapphira in context of this community, this witnessing community. Something about the early church was extremely attractive. It was extremely attractive to Ananias and Sapphira. That's why they joined, I would imagine. And I can imagine, like many people at the time, radical generosity was appealing. It's extremely countercultural. Folk were looking at them and saying, how can this be? What are you doing? You know, what's going on? I want to be a part of that. So Ananias and Sapphira, they, they go ahead and they join this community, but they don't quite get it. And that's okay. Not getting it is fine. Let's remember who the leaders of this community were, the apostles, formerly the disciples. They just got it themselves, right? I mean, if we can remember back to the gospels, the, 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 you know, the disciples weren't the brightest you know, lights in the bunch. So not getting it wasn't the problem. What was the problem, Michelle? I'm so glad that you asked. <laughs> the problem and the answer to the first question was that Ananias and Sapphira decided that they wanted to give the appearance of getting it. They set out to deliberately try to appear to be something that they were not. So let's break this down a little bit further. Um, as Pastor Peter has said many times, this first community was not a socialist community. And what that means is basically the apostles had not set up some system of governing which mandated all people to, you know, sell their possessions and, and give the money and we're going to share everything even, e equally. This was something, I mean, obviously, that wouldn't be generosity then, right? Like you can't mandate generosity. What they were doing was in response to what God was doing in their hearts. It was a response to what the Holy Spirit was doing in their community. And so I can imagine that everybody wasn't this radically generous, right? And I think that there's something in the passage that would um, tell us that. It says from time to time, 
members of the community who had land or had property would sell it. So what that says to me is that from time to time, there were some folk who weren't selling their land and their property. And what's the beauty of that? As a community, they were growing into radical generosity, right? So as people were learning from each other and witnessing the generosity of their brothers and sisters, and as the Holy Spirit was continuing to work on their hearts and grow them in this new faith, people were becoming radically generous. So now let's think about what Ananias and Sapphira do. They said, I, you know, okay, you know, we, we're in this community, everybody's selling land, and this is, this is apparently what it means to be a good Christian. And we want to look like good Christians, right? So this is what we're going to do. <laughs> let us sell some land, but we, you know, we need to hold on because this could blow up any day now. So let's hold on to some of the proceeds. We don't necessarily want to give it all. But at least before others, they can look at us and think, ah, they got it too. They're good Christians. Think about what this could have meant for the com- continued growth of this early community. Think about what this sin of a trying to appear holier than they were could have meant for their witness. So this brings us to the second question. Why were they so harshly punished? Well, this story parallels a story in the book of Joshua, and we're going to go ahead and go there, and we're going to be looking at chapter 7. But just as some background information, in chapter 6 of Joshua, that's the story of Jericho, and, you know, most of us, many of us are familiar with that. God instructs Joshua to tell the folk, you know, I'm going to go ahead and give you the land of Jericho. And so he just told them, how they're going to take the land. And so he says, you guys, I want you to march around the wall once for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to march around the wall seven times. That last time around, sound the trumpets, the wall is going to fall, go in, storm the castle, right? Okay. So one important instruction that God gives them is do not touch the devoted things. And those were the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron. God said, these are the things that ought to go be devoted to the Lord. Don't touch these. Don't take these for yourself. So then beginning in the seventh verse, it says, excuse me, beginning in uh, the first verse of chapter seven, it says, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to, to the devoted things. Akan, Akan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth to the east of Bethel and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out I. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go against I. Send two or 3,000 men to take it and do not worry, do not weary all the people for only a few men are there. So about 3,000 men went up. But when they were routed, excuse me, but they were routed by the men of I who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gates as far from the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same thing and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. 
What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded to them to keep. They have kept some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why Israel cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So ultimately what happens is that it's discovered that Akan um, is the guilty party and he and his whole family are killed. So what's the connection? (laughs) At first glance, this may not seem to be anything like the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but let's look more closely. What do we know about this early Israelite community? For one thing, we know that at this point of the story, they have just crossed over the Jordan after having, been, after having wandered in the desert for 40 years in the wilderness. God has now positioned them to walk into the promise he gave to deliver them into the promised land. So one important connection between both of these stories is that each community was at a pivotal point where they were about to walk into one of the promises of God. For the Israelites, it was entrance into the promised land. And for the Acts community, it was empowerment by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Christ. Another important similarity um, is that in, the, in each case, sin and the particular sin that was committed seriously jeopardized community. In the case of the Israelites, they had just come out of wandering They had been wandering for 40 years because of disobedience. It was so severe that God had said, you know, a whole generation of y'all just need to die off before I can bring you into the promised land, right? That's how serious this was. Think about then what a kind sin would do for the community. You are now done exactly what we've been wandering around in the desert for, right? In the case of the Acts community, the whole point of the church was to be a witness to Christ. And one of the ways that they were witnessing Christ was through being loving and radically generous. So then Ananias and Sapphira, trying to appear to be good Christians, jeopardized that witness. In a way, the punishment for Ananias and Sapphira, just like the punishment of Akan, was a metaphor for what the sin that they committed would have done in that community if it had gone unpunished. It would have meant death for both. In the case of Akan, this was quite literal, literal death, right? Because the Israelites would not have victory in battle. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, this would have meant, possibly meant death to this budding Christian movement. If love and trust are the foundations of radical generosity, then certainly deceit must be the the seed that would undo that generosity. And this goes far above resources. It's not just that this church was, you know, generous with their resources. They shared their lives together. They lived together in a way that communicated to folk looking at them, something is going on here that I want to be a part of. They had community. They did community in a way that folk who looked at them could only conclude that it has to be something divine. Because people don't get along like this. People don't live like this. People don't take care of each other like this apart from God. Now, I, uh, I always find it very ironic when um, I have preached sermons about community, <laughs> because for those of you who know me, one of the things that I do, like, worst like, <laughs> is community. I'm horrible at community. I'm, ter- I'm terrible at community. 
I do not live life with others well. I don't do a good job of sharing my burdens with the community, bringing my burdens. I'm a loner, right? I mean, heck, forget the hard stuff, sharing your burdens and like, I don't call people, you know, like I, it's, it's, I'm, I'm bad. I'm very bad. So know that as I stand here before you, I do not stand here preaching as one who really gets this thing. Like I'm, I'm growing in this whole community thing. But as I was preparing, there are some things that I think that we can all take away that I know I can take away. What does this all mean for us? What does it mean for me? What would it look like? What does Ananias' and Sapphira's sin look like today in the church? Well, um, one example that comes to mind is I think that the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, you know, trying to look holier than you are, being deceitful in the context of Christian community, being focused on trying to be a good Christian rather than actually being a good Christian, it might look like, you know, telling your, your brother or your sister that you're, you're praying for them or you're going to pray for them. Because it sounds like the right thing. That's a Christian thing to say, right? If I, if I share a problem with you as a good Christian, you should tell me I'm going to be praying about that. But then not praying. It could, and, and, I, and some might say like, oh, that's kind of petty. But think about the implications of this. I think we, one of the reasons why I believe the church doesn't pray is because we don't believe that prayer works. We don't think that God answers prayers. But I submit to you that maybe it's not that God isn't answering prayers. We just aren't really praying. It's a whole lot of talk about prayer going on, but we're not really praying. And this was something that I was convicted of like a few years after I became a Christian. You know, the first year, first two years, I was a prayer warrior. I prayed all the time. And so I got into the habit of telling people anytime I heard anything, any concern, I'm going to pray for you. Now, for a while, I actually did pray for people. And then somewhere along the line, it just sort of became like a force of habit to say, I'll pray for you. But I stopped praying. I stopped actually praying. I just, you know, oh my goodness, I'm going to be praying about that. I'm going to be praying about that. And, and no prayer, no prayer was being said. And so I got convicted of this because I was talking to um, a young woman who I knew had asked me to pray about a situation she was going, that was, you know, she was going through. And I told her, okay, I'm just like, I'm going to be praying about that. And I may have said a prayer, like when I walked away from her, like, Lord, you know, to help that situation, maybe. But there was no serious prayer happening. So we're talking and she's coming to me and she's like, girl, I know you are a prayer warrior because let me tell you, the Lord brought me out and she's testifying and like, I know you got a direct line to Jesus because I'm sitting here like, oh Lord, <laughs> like I have not uttered a single solitary prayer on your behalf. And what's worse, what's worse is that I didn't have the heart to fess up about, you know, the truth. I couldn't tell her, I couldn't bring myself to tell her. I didn't actually pray, but I'm so glad God did that for you. Because I didn't want to look, right, like a bad Christian. I didn't want to look like a big hypocrite. I just told you I'm going to pray for you, and you've been really struggling. This is something that is clearly serious. And you took my words seriously to heart. I didn't have the heart to say I didn't pray for you. So she walked away believing that I had some serious Holy Ghost power, and I walked away feeling like, Lord, uh, like I'm, I'm awful, <laughs> So I've, I've since tried to, I, you know, I had to actually just stop saying the words. I will not tell you I'm going to pray for you unless I'm going to pray for you. And I could literally, for about a year, I just would not say I'll pray for you. I would pray, but I'm like, I just couldn't say those words until I got my act together. So I think that that's one of the ways that this might look in the church. What are some other ways that this might manifest itself in the church? 
We're good at saying, you know, oh, I'm fine. Oh, everything is going good. There's Christianese. I know in the black church, you ask somebody how they're doing, and often you would get like, I'm blessed and highly favored. I, and that used to always trouble me because I would, you know, someone would say, how are you doing? I'd say, fine. I'm like, and how are you doing? Blessed and highly favored. I'm like, shoot. Like, I didn't, I didn't say blessed and highly favored. <laughs> like, I was supposed to say You know, but we, we, we do a good job of, you know, kind of staying here with each other. And certainly, you're not going to go deep with every single person, but there ought to be. If you call New Community home, you ought to have one person, one someone, a couple someone. There ought to be people here who you can go deep with, right? Who you can be real with, who you can hold accountable and be held accountable by, right? This, when we decide that we're going to like put on airs and we're not going to talk to each other, we're not going to be honest, we rob the community of the opportunity to extend love, the opportunity to extend grace. And we basically say that this, like Ananias and Sapphira, whereas radical generosity was motivated by the work of the Holy Spirit and we were, they were living out what God was doing, we say, well, forget about living out what God is doing. I want to live out what we think, you know, I ought to be like. So we don't grow. We stay dead. We, we stay babies in the faith. Another problem with this deception and, and, and trying to be something that we are not is that we rob folks outside of our community, people who don't believe, we rob them of the opportunity of being able to see that we are the same, save for the grace of God, right? That we struggle with the same exact things, that we face the same exact fears, but the difference is that we have a hope. We have a savior because that's attractive to people. If people could look at my life and say, her life looks a lot like mine, but there's something else. There's something that she has that I need, that I want, that I desire. That's what would draw people to our communities. But we stay at the surface. We don't go deeper. We want to be good Christians. I think that the church has become so concerned with trying to look like good Christians that we've actually forgotten what it means to be good Christians, right? How might this look? Well, for one, I think that um, one thing we have to stop doing is having an acceptable list of sins. What what do I mean by that? When I first got saved, you know, I would go to Bible studies, and when people would talk about, you know, what are you struggling with, everybody struggled with pride. Now, I had no, I'm sure I struggled with pride too. I mean, I came to them like, I must be prideful because everybody's prideful, right? So I, but I, I had never, that was not ever on the forefront of my mind. And somebody asked me, what am I struggling with? I'm thinking, well, you know, I lie, right? Or I, you know, I am having a hard time believing that God is going to move in my life. Like I would have this list of things that I was struggling with as an early believer, but the only thing that it seemed like it was appropriate to talk about was being prideful. If you were a man, you could be struggling with sexual sin. If you were a woman, you could be struggling with loneliness and longing. Like, um, if you were heterosexual, you could struggle with sexual temptation. Not if you were homosexual. Don't share that. Don't bring that over. See, we have this list of things that are appropriate, things that we can hear and we'll, you know, we can say, okay, I'll, I'll pray for that or I'll receive that or whatever. We need to be people who can just hear it all, right? What does this mean for our community? It means that we need to be two things. One, trustworthy. We have to be folk who people can come to and not worry that they might, be, that they might face judgment or condemnation, that we're going to look at them cross-eyed because they didn't, you know, name something on our appropriate list. We also, at the same time, though, have to be people who are willing to be transparent. And I think that if we had a community where there was trustworthiness and transparency, 
we could start to look like this early Acts community and folk would be drawn to what God is doing among us. See, if we are honest, in the context of a Christian community, we ought to be able to share each other's burdens. We ought to be able to just be ugly in front of one another and know that that is going to be okay because there are folk around us who love us, who will support us, who will build us up. So like I said, this is an area that I struggle with. I know that one of the places this can happen in new community is community groups. And as I was um, preparing my sermon, I was very convicted because I have not been a part of a community group in a very, very long time. But that's certainly, certainly a place where you have a small group of people that you can actually live life, do life with. So, hmm. a lot is at stake, right? A lot is at stake. If we are going to be a church that actually goes out and transforms the city of Chicago and that transforms the nation, if we are going to be people who Christ uses to impact his kingdom, we must be people who can be transparent. We must be people who will be trustworthy. We must actually wrestle with what it means, what it looks like to be a community. We cannot be people who know each other because we see each other on Sunday and then that's the, that's the extent of our involvement in each other's lives. That's not what God has called us to. God has called us to radical generosity, to radical life sharing, to radical community. So as I pray for you, I ask that you pray for me that I would learn what it means to walk in this kind of radical community, what it looks like to embrace this, what it looks like to do this, to live life with each other. Um, The worship team can go ahead and come back up. So the way I would like to, to end this sermon is have us spend some time praying for one another. So who, if you are sitting next to somebody, if you could take a moment to just turn to that person If there's something on your heart that you need to share, that you specifically want prayer about, go ahead and share that. If not, just take a moment and pray in the Spirit. And we're going to ask the Lord to help us grow in this area. We're going to ask the Lord to be with us, to walk with us. And also take some time to even ask for forgiveness for the ways that we have not been transparent, for the way the times that we have been deceitful, the times that we have been more concerned about appearing to be good Christians than we were about actually learning how to be good Christians. So go ahead and take some time and partner up with someone sitting next to you. Father, we just thank you. We thank you because you are an awesome and loving God. We thank you that you are a God that teaches us. We pray, Lord, that you, as as our Father, would teach us how to walk into the community that you've called us to be in. Teach us how to be folk who are radically generous. Teach us how to be folk who share our lives together. God, we pray that our desire would be to please you and you alone, 
that we would not be concerned with what other folk think of us, how we look in their eyes, that we would abandon the, the, uh, uh, the goal of trying to look like good Christians. God, we pray that you would teach us what it means to follow you, that you would teach us what it means to love one another as you loved us, as you love this church. And we repent, Lord, for every time, for every time that we have cared more about what someone next to us thought than what you thought. Lord, please do purify us. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation, Lord God, and strengthen us to go forward and truly be a new community. Yes, God. Yes, we know, Lord, Jesus. we know, Lord, that you are moving. We know, Lord, that you desire to do amazing things in this city and beyond through this church, God. So prepare the way, Lord. Prepare our hearts. Prepare our lives to be radical witnesses of your goodness. Lord, and we will give you glory. We will give you praise because we know that you and you alone are worthy. In Christ's name we pray and we ask all of these things. Amen. We stand with us as we close this morning. Our confidence, our assurance to live the life that Michelle challenges to live comes directly and only from knowing and realizing who Christ is and what he has done. May the power of the cross and the power of God's sacrificial love for you and for me be the engine, be the power, be the source that will enable us to be the community that God has called us to be. Church, as you leave this place this morning, remember throughout this week the calling on your life. Fix your eyes on the cross. May we be God's people of the gospel. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday.